Am I on here? I should be on here, right? It's been a great morning so far, right? I hope I don't ruin it with my sermon today. (laughs) No pressure. Uh, Read your Bible, pray every day. We're in 2 Peter, and I just wanted to remind us again of growth. You just do the consistent, most basic daily disciplines of life and uh, the Christian faith, and you'll grow, grow, grow. You want to grow in Christ? Then read your Bible, pray every day. You want to shrink and stagnate in your Christian life? Well, just neglect to read your Bible and pray. It's really uh, a lot of it boils down to that. Maybe you've heard it a hundred times before. Maybe it bears, needs repeating. But uh, it's really the most basics. And you know, Peter, Peter taught that. If you, if you turn in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter said, you need to read your Bible. He said, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You want to grow? Well, then long for the milk of the Word, like an infant just cries and fusses and cries and fusses until it's satisfied. Have that kind of longing for the Word of God. Because the Bible holds the truths of what we need to know. The pure milk of the Word. Peter also tells us to pray. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him. Troubles and difficulties come on your life. Humble yourself before the Lord and, and cast everything upon Him. That is prayer. Just giving it to the Lord. It bears repeating because you need reminding. Well, Peter today gets us to the point where we need reminding. My message this morning is uh, appropriately titled, You Need Reminding. That's what Peter's talking about here. If you haven't done so, open your Bibles to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter, we have come to verse 12 in our exposition. We've been going verse by verse through for those visiting the hooks. And um, today we, ride, we land at verse 12. So let me read it for you. First Peter, chapter one, Second Peter, chapter one, verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. Now one of the things that instantly strikes us as you look at this passage here is how much first person Peter employs. All four verses are spoken in the first person. The first person means words like I or me or my. And in fact, seven times here in the first in these four verses, he, he used this. He says, verse 12, I will always be re- ready to remind you. He says in verse 15, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling. Verse 14, talks about how my earthly dwelling. Jesus Christ has made clear to me how it's going to be put off. Verse 15, I will be diligent that you remember these things after my departure. Seven times in four verses makes this section unique in 2 Peter because there's only one other verse in the entire epistle where he speaks in the first person. Chapter 3, verse 1. Every other time, it's you or they or we. But this is the first person. This is, this is me. Peter's 
talking about himself, but he's not focusing our attention upon him. Rather, he's indicating that for Peter, this has become very personal. And he's bringing some very personal things to his life so as to make a point. You say, what's, what's the personal thing in his life? Well, verse 14 is the key. I know that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is, is imminent. That's also Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter uses the imagery here of folding up a tent and putting it away. Use the imagery here of taking off your clothes and setting them aside. He's not talking about a real tent. He's not talking about real clothes. He's talking about his body. He's referencing his death. He says, I'm about to die. I'm about to replace my tent with a, a palace. I'm about to change my old ragged clothes to get the king's finest gowns. But my little time remaining, I want to tell you what is of utmost importance. This is my last chance to tell you what it is that you need to know. And his message is you need to remember. So he, he even asked you, but how did Peter know that he was going to die? How do you know? Well, it says in verse 14 that the Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to him. I think that's a reference to uh, what took place, what John records at the end of his Gospel. In John 21, he wrote at the time where Jesus was reinstating Peter after Peter had fallen away and denied Jesus three times. Then, then Jesus talked to him and said, Do you love me? He said, Yes, I love you. He says, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, shepherd my flock. And then at, right at the end of that conversation... Jesus says this to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. It's kind of cryptic words, right? You used to walk where you want to walk, and, but there's going to be a time when... Uh, you're going to stretch out your hands and people are going to take you where you don't want to go. John clarified the next verse what he said. He said, now this Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And what John was alluding to, what Jesus was alluding to, John recorded for us, is an allusion to the crucifixion. Where one's hands are stretched out wide, nailed to the cross, and lifted up to suffocate to death before everybody. So what's going to take place? And church tradition holds that Peter was crucified just like Jesus, except he didn't deem worthy to suffer like Jesus, so he requested to be crucified upside down. And church tradition says that he, he was just like Jesus had predicted. And so as Peter writes these words in Second Peter, there's an urgency about him. There's a, uh, this is the last thing he's going to say. He knew he was going to die a violent death. So he wants to leave these scattered believers all abroad with, it, with his closing message. And fundamentally, his message, as I said earlier, was one of reminder. When you look over these verses, also one of the things you notice, not only first person, but you also notice this word remember comes up three times. Look there in verse 12. I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Right? It's a cognitive remember. I, I want you to remember. I want you to be reminded. Uh, verse 13. I consider it right to stir you up by way of reminder. I'm going to remind you of these things. I'm going to stir you up. And verse 15, I'll be diligent that any time after my departure you will be able to remember these things, literally, or call these things to mind. You need reminding. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to remind you. Same old truths. Same old message. I hope it comes fresh. Well, you need reminding. Peter gives us four reasons why you need reminding. You need reminding, first of all, even if you already know. You need reminding even if you already know. Verse 12, Peter says this, Therefore, 
I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And you have been established in the truth, which is present with you. Now, isn't it true there's a tendency among us all to feel belittled when someone tells us something that we already know? Look, I already know that. You're wasting my time. Stop telling me. Sometimes when I'm talking with my kids, sometimes my kids say, Dad, I know that. I know that. I know that. And I say, well, be patient with me. You need to hear it again. And so we are like that as, as well. We don't want wasted time. We don't want to be told again and again. And yet, lest Peter's readers turn sour, he said, listen, I'm telling you this, not because you don't know it, but indeed you do know it. And I know that you've been established in the truth. In fact, he is writing to Christians because he says they, they know it and have been established in the truth. He's writing to the same people who received the first epistle. We know that from chapter 3, because he says, I'm writing to you again. Um, and these people were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And they'd received his first, his first letter. They were believers in Christ, not non-Christians. These are, these are Christians. Now, what's also interesting here, they're not new Christians who just need to know the elementary things. They're not like baby Christians who who just, well, let me just tell you what, what the basis of Christianity is. No, these are mature Christians. If you look how Peter describes these people, it says they have been established in the truth. The idea here is that you're firm and you're steadfast. You are strengthened in the truth. And, and I think that they have experienced hardships and sufferings and trials of life and have endured appropriately. First Peter spoke all about the sufferings that we are expected to endure as believers in Christ. Trials from government and from work and from marriage and former friends and the flesh which wages war against our soul. And Peter speaks in 1 Peter about how these people were slandered and maligned and reviled and accused falsely. And yet, he also says that in all this, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you're experiencing your trials. So these are people who experience trials, and through them they were joyful, and through them they, they overcame them, and, and I believe that that showed, that, that brought them to a place of maturity. These are mature believers. Maybe there's some of you here today, I think many of you, I would consider mature believers. And this message is for you. It's not just for the weak or the baby Christians. This is for the mature Christians. So you say, what is Peter going to remind them of? He says in verse 12, I'm going to remind you of these things. You say, well, what are these things? Well, in verse 10, he spoke about practicing these things. In verse 9, he talked about whoever lacks these things. In verse 7, he, eight, he speaks about if these things are in your life. Right? He's just kind of talking about it. So when he talks about these things, I think he's talking about everything from verses 1 through verse 11. I want to remind you of these things. And bear with me, church family. I know we spent several weeks on these things, but you need to be reminded of them, even though you already know them. We've been established in the truth. Here it is, 1 through 4, First, Second Peter. We've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, just as uh, Doug quoted. You're learning, Doug. That's good. <laughs> you already know them. You've been established, but you need to learn it again. We have everything we need for pertaining to life and godliness. God gave us faith in verse 1. He gave us grace and peace, he says in verse 2. In verse 4, he speaks about the promises that we have received that we can anticipate. There's nothing we lack to live a godly life. You don't need to go out there and find some new teaching. You don't need to find some new experience. You don't need to find some secret to living the Christian life. It's already in you. You have it. 
It's in Christ Jesus. You are, as I put it, ready to grow. You're all set, all ready to grow. And then the question Peter says in verses 5 and following is, are you growing? And a growth of a godly life is one that applies all diligence and faith to believe this promise that we have everything, and then it grows in um, moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. All those seven of those qualities. It just, just grows in those things. And Peter mentions how a godly life sees these qualities increasing contrasted with the, the professing Christian who lacks these qualities, is deficient in his life. But if these qualities are growing, he says, you can make your calling and election sure, is what he says there in verse 10. We can be assured of our salvation as we see, believe, God has granted it to us everything and we see these things increasing in our life. And now Peter gets down to verse 12 and says, I'm going to remind you of these things. You want to summarize it all? It says this, God's given us everything we need. We can escape the corruptions of the world by faith in Him because we have a righteousness in Him and we're equipped and ready to live godly in Christ. Those are these things. I want you to be established in them. Want those things to sink deep into your hearts, sink deep in your minds, because you know those things. If you really know those things, what's going to happen? You're going to help me now. This audience participation. If you know those things, you are going to grow. grow. All right, good. Know and grow. Second Peter. And you need you need reminding. You know, it's it's a little bit like this. It's a little bit like um, uh, a, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, we had the Wisemans over for for dinner. And uh, we're in a conversation with them, and then all of a sudden, my back starts hurting. And you guys know what that is, right? Kenny Stones, for me. And uh, it was awful. It was, it was nasty. And I just said, well, we'll see you later. I'm going to bed. Took some wonderful medicine. What's it called again? Tor- What's it called? Tordol? Tordol. Took some wonderful Tordol. Within three hours, I was able to go to Flocks again. It was great. And so what, what do you think my habits are going to change from, from then on? I'm going to drink a lot of water. The doctor told me to drink a lot of lemonade. And you know what? I was doing pretty two weeks ago. I think I did great for about like five days. And you have done the last, whatever it's been, five, nine days since then. I've not been doing very well. And in fact, several different people. My dad called me this week and said, Steve, are you drinking your water? And two different families came up to me this Sunday and said, are you drinking? And I'm like, I need reminding I know the truth. I've been established in the truth. But I need reminding to drink my water lest I have this terrible thing come again. I'm just telling you that even though we know it, we need to be reminded of it. And and, and I'm not going to regret, I'm not going to look down on any of you who tell me, are you drinking your water? Maybe I'll I'll, I'll respond and say, yes, (laughs) praise the Lord, I am. Well, no, I'm not. I need thanks for reminding me. Right? And that's what we ought to be. When Peter, when we say, hey, you've got everything pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus, don't say, I already know that. Say, uh, thanks for reminding me. I need that. Maybe that should be a mantra at Rock Valley Bible Church. We just say that. We have everything we need. We have everything we need. We have everything we need. Everything we need. So believe Him and trust in Him. Well, you need reminding even if you already know. My second point, you need reminding because it is right to be reminded. Verse 13, look, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. And Peter here knew that he was soon to die. So he considered all that was before him, he considered the right thing to do is to remind these scattered believers the truth of the Gospel. In fact, as long as Peter had breath, 
He was going to remind these people of these things. At this point, there's no reason to bring up anything new. He wanted to just say, you know those things I told you, those things I wrote about you? Keep them. Stay there. Entrust yourself there. Peter's willing to do this because he considered it the right thing to do. In fact, such a methodology is the heart of Christian ministry. I'm a pastor of a church, but primarily my job is I am a reminder to all of us of the things we already know. And when we start to drift, when you start to drift, it is my job to bring you back to what's right. Just remember, remember what's right. right? Remember the truths. Remember the, the old things. Right? Jeremiah 6.16 speaks about the ancient ways, the old paths. That's all we're about. About the same thing that we need to be reminded of. See, the reality of the Christian faith is this, is what's new is not true. And what's true is not new. Okay? Let's hear that again. What's new is not true. And what's true is not new. Let's say it together. What's new is not true. And what's true is not new. You know, now we are so <clears throat> taught and trained differently. We want the next best, the next greatest. I was thinking this week about amusement park. And I remember as a child, like 1980, so whatever that is, 30 years ago, um, I remember going to Marriott's Great America. And uh, how many of you have been to Marriott's Great America? What if you kids? Have you been to Marriott's Great America? SR, have you? <laughs> yes, you have. Great America, have you been there before? I think so. All right. When I was your age, SR, there was this, huge, there was this big fancy ride that had just been built and, uh, and it was called the Demon. And you went up. You went up this, this uh, track all the way up and then you went down and then you went around two loops and then you went around and you corkscrewed at the end. And that was like, I waited a long time in line to get on this ride. And um, isn't the Demon just a, a, a huge awesome ride, guys? What's happened? You know, the demon is like, you can get on the demon. If you go to Mary's Great America, you can get on the demon. Ain't nobody rides the demon anymore. You know, rather, there are these, these bigger things. Well, yeah, some of you do, but in, and it's tame enough for me. But now they've got these bigger rides, you know, this Superman and this Batman and this, I forget what, even what the others are called. What? V2, right? That's the one you're talking about. And Iron Wolf, and um, there's one more I'm forgetting. Raging Bull, right? We were just there this summer, and the, <laughs> these rides make, make the demon look tiny, right? But you know what? That's such a picture of who we are. Right? We want something bigger. We want the next thrill. We want it to get grander. Right? We want to have a greater experience. We want to, and that's just the, the way... I, I, can't, I can't wait to see what the amusement parks ride are, rides are like in another 20 years. It'll be interesting. But that's where it always is. We, we're not used to just being satisfied with the old things. We always want something new. The, the entertainment industry understands this really well. They're always pushing pushing the scope, right? They're always pushing the envelope for a, for a movie that's just a little bit more violent, for a movie that has a little bit more sex, for a movie that's got a little bit more interesting plot, and it's always getting bigger. You've got to go to a bigger and bigger. The effects are getting better and better. Right? The old Star Wars movies are nothing, but the new Star Wars movies are, wow, unbelievable. The computer animated whatever, you know? And it just feeds us that we are people that just get, want bigger and better and new. In a church, it's no different. New things come along the block all the time. Twenty years ago, the, pra- the, the craze was the, the pragmatic church, asking non-Christians what they want in a church and then doing what they want so we can have a church filled with non-Christians. And that prospers, right? There's, there's lots of people coming to those things. That was a phase. Five years ago, the buzz was the purpose-driven life. Hey, 40 years, this is really the key. You know, a lot of churches got on that bandwagon. did a lot of 40, 40 days of life. In recent days, the emergent church, 
right? Desperately trying to experience Jesus in a new and fresh way. That's like the new thing. And, and theologically, they're always pushing the bubble. I think 20 years ago, it was about psychology in the Bible, how to integrate those things, whereas really now there's that's not so much a discussion out there so much. Ten years ago, it was the openness of God controversies. Right? Does God really know the future? Five years ago, it was a new perspective of Paul. Right? Like, like we never understood Paul before until like five years ago. <laughs> That's what people are saying. It's the new perspective of Paul. Now, you might not be familiar with some of these things. Um, maybe it's because it's off there in the theological world that you don't mix in. Maybe it's because we at Rock Valley Bible Church, we're not into those things. We're not into gimmicks. We're just into reminding you of the same things and we will walk the old paths because the old paths are the true paths because the true paths are not the new paths and the new paths are not the true paths. Every good pastor knows that the message of the cross is the message his congregation needs week after week after week after week after week. Said in different ways. So I'm not going to get up here and say the same thing, but different ways, different angles. And that's the Bible. The Bible is always just focusing on that. Right? The Old Testament's anticipating it. The New Testament's explaining it. It's the glories of redemption, the glories of Calvary. We need to continually be reminded of what it means, right? That, that God became... A man, Jesus Christ Himself, walked a perfect life, had perfect righteousness so that we could have His righteousness. And when He died upon the cross, God took our sin upon Him and He raised from the dead to prove that everything He said was exactly true. And now by faith, we receive all those promises. That, that's what's going to sustain you. That's what's going to sustain us as a church. And we need to hear it again and again and again. We need to keep saying amen, Spencer, right? Amen. amen. That's why we need to hear it again and again and again to be reminded that that's, that's the center of our faith. That's the, of, that's the only thing we got. Think about Paul when he was in Corinth. It's the one message he preached. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I, there was nothing that I was going to tell you except to this man who'd come and died upon the cross and all the implications of it, how he raised from the dead, I lift it up to new life. How we can live in Him righteous lives. How we can be saved from our sins. We have a hope of heaven. See, the cross of Christ isn't merely the bullseye of Paul's preaching as if you know, there are other things which are close. No, the, the cross is His only bullet in the gun. His cross is the only tool in the bag. The only message He had. As David Pryor wrote, we never move on from the cross only to a more profound understanding of the cross. That's what I seek to do week after week. We understand it a little bit more. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, knowing that in the cross there's everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's just right there. And you start soaking that up. What does it mean everything? Well, you just start digging. You're going to find lots of things when there's everything to find. See, it's not merely non-Christians who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, they do. And non-Christians need to hear of a Savior ready and willing to save if they but repent from their sins. But Christians need to hear the glories of the Gospel. Listen, Paul wrote to the Romans. Romans chapter 1. He says, I long to see you. I've often planned to come to you. I've been thwarted many times. And here's what he says. I long to come to you to church in Rome and I am eager to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome. And you think about that and you say, who's he writing? He's writing to Christians at Rome. He wanted to preach the Gospel to the Christians at Rome. Why is it? Because it's the only message we have. It's the message of Christ crucified. And it's a powerful message. He says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of this message because it is the power of God for salvation. Yes, it's powerful. As the word goes out, it's powerful to convict a sinner in his heart of his need for a Savior. 
And it is also powerful to keep us saved until that final day. In fact, the truth be known, I think that's probably what Romans 1 verse 16 is talking about it. The Gospel preached to the church is the power of God for salvation. It's going to keep us until that final day. The question might well arise, why would you preach something different? Why would you try something that doesn't work? <laughs> we know you've got in, in God's tool bag that that works. Indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. And you can give signs, you give wisdom, but that's nothing. But see, Christ crucified is to the Jews a stumbling block, the Gentiles' foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, the message of the Gospel is going to confront those looking for big signs, looking for other things, looking for you know, sophistry and other, other interesting things to think about like those on Mars Hill did. But the message of the power to save is the Gospel of Christ, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Listen, when we think about how we've been justified by faith in Christ to be freed from our sins, when we think about how God has brought us into His family, has adopted us, has not just forgiven us, but has brought us into His family. When we think about how we can address this holy and awesome God with, before whom the earth shakes as Daddy, Abba, Father. This is earth-shattering it will strengthen us to live godly lives. That's how the church will be built on the power of the message of a crucified Savior. And when Paul talked about his own preaching, he, he said that Christ sent him to preach the Gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. In other words, there's a way that you can speak that voids the cross. And a way you speak that voids the cross is by being especially clever. Or by being... Um, in such a way that people are drawn to the messenger rather than to the message. You want a powerful ministry? Focus upon our wonderful Savior. How many of you heard of Charles Spurgeon? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you heard of Joseph Parker? Okay. Joseph Parker? You guys know who he is? Preston, do you know who Joseph Parker is? You raise your hand. Maybe different Joseph Parker. Do you? No? Okay. Well, one had a, had a great ministry that still exists today, right? And Joseph Parker had a big ministry in his day, but none of us know his name. Listen to this. Arnold Delamore, in, Spurgeon's, in the Spurgeon biography that he wrote, said, During the 1880s, a group of American visit ministers visited England, prompted especially by desire to hear some of the celebrated preachers of that land. On a Sunday morning, they attended City Temple, where Dr. Joseph Parker was the pastor. Some 2,000 people filled the building, and Parker's Forceful personality dominated the service. His voice was commanding, his language descriptive, and his imagination lively, and his manner animated. The sermon was scriptural. The congregation hung on his every word, and the Americans came away saying, what a wonderful preacher is Joseph Parker. And then they went, I remember hearing C.J. Mahaney use the illustration, he said, they, they went to hear Spurgeon in the evening. <laughs> he says, you don't hear Spurgeon in the evening, Right? You hear Spurgeon in the morning and you hear Spurgeon in the evening and you hear him on Monday night prayer meeting and wherever you can, you hear Spurgeon. But they went to Spurgeon, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, so the building was much larger than the city temple and the congregation was more than twice the size. Spurgeon's voice was much more expressive and moving as his oratory noticeably superior. But they soon forgot about the magnificent voice. They even overlooked their intention to compare the various features of the two preachers and when the service was over, they found themselves saying, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus Christ. 
That's a good illustration about how to speak, not in cleverness, right? But to, to, to get away and just say, I want to show you our wonderful Savior, who's Jesus. Then the cross isn't made void and it has the power to run its effect. Well, you want to have a powerful ministry, keep reminding people of our wonderful Savior. You want to have a powerful ministry just with people, not necessarily just even preaching, conversation, and just remind people of the wonderful Savior we have and the cross of Christ won't be made void. All right, here, third point. You need reminding, even if you already know, because right, and here it is, verse 14, because it's important. Verse 14, we see Peter mentioning how close he is to death. He says, Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I already talked before about the, uh, the death of Peter. We don't need to focus our attention upon that. But we need to say, what, what's, what's the point of verse 14? Why is he saying that I'm going to die soon? I'm going to die quickly. Well, what's the point of saying that? And I think his point is this. It's a serious tone to his letter. He's saying, you know what? I'm about to die soon. This is really important. Hear me now. You need reminding because it's important. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, once said, I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. And if you preach like that, there's an urgency in the way that you preach. And that's what Peter's saying. Listen, I'm on my deathbed. And and I'm going to communicate to you the most important things here. The most important things is that you remember to drink your water, right? You remember the Gospel of Christ. It's important to remember these things. It's important to remember that, P, that Christ has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's important to remember that we're called to grow up in Him and that as we see the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our life, we're assured that He has saved us. Let me just ask you, have you taken pains to remember these things? Have you taken pains? If it's this important, I mean, think about it. Things that are important to you, you take pains to remember them. You have a dentist appointment. What do you do? You're right on your calendar. You have a meeting with somebody. What do you do? You say, well, remind me when we're going to meet together. You have a task to do. You write it down on your to-do list. You have something to learn, and so you write it down and you post it up on your kitchen sink or on your mirror. You have someone's birthday you want to remember, so you put it on a calendar. You have a password for some website someplace, so you write it down so you remember. You have keys that you're going to constantly use, so you put them back on the same hook time after time after time. You have medicine to take, and so you have different containers for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You work, someone calls in an order, and you put it in the computer right away, or you write it down right away so you can remember. If you're a preacher, you find ways to tuck away future illustrations and future thoughts and future quotes for, for future texts. We work hard to remember things. If, if you need to go someplace and someone's telling you directions, you need to remember, you're writing down your directions. You need to remember it. If you don't take some of those actions, you'll forget. And depending upon the importance of what you need to remember, you will work hard to make sure that you remember it. In fact, I've seen this on more than one occasion, particularly teenage girls. I'm not sure what it is about teenage girls, but talking to them and there's something to remember and how do they remember it? They take out a pen and they write it on their hand somehow or they write it on their arm, right? Is that teenage girl kind of thing? I don't think I ever did that. But terastic actions, right? To mark up your hand so that you will remember forever. Okay, yep, I got a call. This is that person's phone number. And I'm not going to forget it because it's always going to be right there. Now let me ask you, spiritually, do you make efforts to remember? Or do you make more efforts to remember the mundane things of life and don't make efforts to remember the important, most important 
spiritual truths of the gospel. Think about when the Lord instructed Israel about His Word. He told them to take some steps. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on all your gates. He says, listen, this is important for you to remember. So write it down. Talk of them. Teach your children. And Jewish people, Orthodox Jewish people, are very diligent teaching their, their children. I mean, it's not unheard of for, for small children to have memorized the Torah. First five books of the Bible. Finding God's Word on your heart. The, the Jewish people, you've seen these phylacteries, right? They make little boxes. They put the Scripture in those boxes and they put them on their hands and they wrap them around. They put them on their, their foreheads and they wrap them around these big boxes that you have Scripture inside of them, taking this really literally. But taking some steps so as to remember the Scripture in their homes. Written words in the Old Testament around their homes. Do you take efforts to remember the most important things? Do you? C.J. Mahaney wrote this excellent book, The Cross-Centered Life. If you don't have it, I encourage you to have, get it. If you need one, talk to me. I can give you a copy. But he talks about, gives, gives five pieces of advice to keep the flame of the gospel passion burning brightly in the dizzle of real life. Every day. Let me just read some of you. First point, he says this, memorize the gospel. He encourages you to take some Bible memory. Just memorize those key truths so that wherever you are, you can always reflect your heart and your mind upon the gospel. You say, what should I memorize? Well, you know what I think a good verse to memorize would be? How about 2 Peter verses 1 through 11, chapter 1. You think it's worthy to memorize? I do. In fact, I challenge you. If you memorize it, I'll memorize it. All right? <laughs> it will help you. Memorize the gospel. Secondly, CJ says over here, and he gives some verses you can write. Secondly, he says, pray the gospel. Simply means that when you pray, remind yourself of how God has accepted you in Christ. So pray something like this. God, I thank You that I'm coming to You as a, as a sinner in need of grace, but I thank You that in Christ Jesus, Your wrath has been diverted unto Him. And then get on to your requests. Or I thank You, God, that, that in Christ I have a mediation and an access to You, O Father, only because of what He did for me and not because of my merits for my own. And, and here now I'm going to come boldly and request these things. I just challenge you, church body, begin every prayer you have. Some mention of the cross or the gospel or Christ or His work that reconciles you to God. That will help you be diligent to remember these things. CJ says his third piece of advice is sing the gospel. Sing the gospel. By this, he just encourages us to sing songs of redemption. And I'm not sure you know this, but at Rockville, we, Andy and I, we meet each week playing songs. Uh, I've always telling you, let's sing of the redemption, let's sing of the redemption, let's sing of the redemption, right? We want to sing of, of, of just what Christ has done for us. Now, there is a place for God-centered worship. We worship Him in His holiness, absolutely. But, but just in holiness, uh, just a part there, it's, uh, it's kind of cold. But it's when we sing of the redemption how we're brought near to that it brings a newness of life isn't there a, a different perspective and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood how deep the Father's love for us how great beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure 
Or a song like, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. As you sing the Gospel, it will help you to remind yourself of these things. Fourth, he says, review how the Gospels changed you. At this point, CJ just calls us to reflect upon how God's worked in our life. How God has worked to change us. Say, so, you know what? That's what I used to be. I'm not that now. Now I'm this. Wow, God has changed me greatly. I'm thankful to Him. Maybe, maybe recall some sin that He has helped you overcome in recent days. And rejoice in that. This will help you remember. This will show that, you know what, the Gospel is important for me to remember if you take these steps. Also, finally, he says, fifth point, he says, study the Gospel. He says, uh, take, take an in-depth study of a book like Galatians or Romans, which really, really picks the Gospel apart and shows us how we're justified before God. Or he says, read through the whole Bible. Rather than necessarily read through the whole Bible looking for just hints of the Gospel in the Old Testament, how it's anticipating Christ's coming. In the New Testament, how it's explaining how Christ came. C.G. also mentions a number of books that dig deep into the cross. If you want some books, that'll uh, there's some books in the cross which are somewhat straightforward. I've not got through them yet because they're, they're difficult, because they're, they're just talking about just what the cross means. I just want to dig deeper into that. It will help you. He calls us to listen to cross-centered preaching on tapes or CDs or MP3s. Listen, it is amazing, the Internet. It's just unbelievable. I, I've just been marveling with my wife recently. All of John MacArthur's... You want any sermon John MacArthur's preached at Grace Community Church? It's there for free. Take it. You can buy an MP3 player, 60 bucks, and uh, you can have on here a thousand sermons of his. Will that keep you busy? <laughs> will that keep you focused on Jesus? It will. If you need help with that, boy, if you say, I want to get that, I'll load up any MP3 player you got just so you go and do that. Right, Don? <laughs> Absolutely, I will. I did for him. Finally, we are, we are way out of time, but um, you know, we'll go long. <laughs> That's how it works. We need reminding, even if you already know, because you know it's right, because it is important, and here finally, so you will remember. Verse 15, And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Again, he's referring to his death. He calls it here his departure. Literally, it's an exodus. In verse 11, he spoke about his entrance. Those are two words, exodus and Isidus, the, the entrance in. He's anticipating a time where he would exit the earthly stage and come enter the kingdom of Christ. And when he's gone, he wants to make sure that he leaves a legacy. And the legacy isn't about himself. The, the legacy isn't, well, here's the next pope to establish. Okay? Because he, he wasn't a pope. But here you think about the last time, the last, and what, what would he say? He says, I want you to remember Christ. I want you to remember what's most important. We have everything we need to grow, so grow. We, we have everything we need to grow, so let's grow in Him. That's what he says. Because Peter knows full well there's going to come a time when you might easily forget these things. This is how it is. There comes a time when we might easily forget. And forgetfulness of the Gospel can swing us two ways. It can either swing us this way or it can swing us this way. It can swing us if we forget Christ and the cross. We can swing this way into despair. Like, 
Oh, I sinned again. I am a terrible, wretched, awful sinner and sorrow and downcast and depressed. But, but, but how will the Gospel bring you back? Say, but in Christ, I've been forgiven. He, he stands before the throne pleading my cause for me. I am righteous and holy in Him. Someday I'll be like Him. And that brings us back here. And perhaps our danger, though, is we might swing this way because we're good church-going folk who read our Bible. We pray every day. We can say, oh, look, at, I read my Bible today. Check. I prayed today. Check. I attended church this Sunday. Check. And we can check all these things and all these activities we do over here and we can swing to self-righteousness. But the Gospel helps bring us back to center by, by this way. It says, listen, it's, it's because of what Christ did that, that, that you're accepted before Him. It's not these righteous things of what you are doing. The things that you're doing is only the fruit of what He did in your life. He's the one that gave you faith, granted you repentance, and He's the one that justifies you there. And so, see, how the Gospel is a way to center us both ways, and it's easy to forget those things. We can go into despair. But we ought to be encouraged that our righteousness is in Christ. And we can go to self-righteousness, but we ought to despair that our righteousness isn't our own self. It's a righteousness that isn't ours. And if you just think in the broad-scale perspective of Israel... Israel was told constantly to remember, to remember, to remember. When, when Moses was preaching his last sermons, he was about to die. It's uh, Deuteronomy. It's, it's his last year of preaching. It's right there. All of Deuteronomy. Time and time again, he told them, Deuteronomy 4, verse 9, Do not forget the things which you have seen. Deuteronomy 4, 23, Watch yourselves and do not forget the covenant of the Lord our God which He made with you. Over and over, he told the people to think about the powerful hand that led us out from the land of Egypt. And yet, what do we know about the history of Israel? One of the things they failed to do was remember. They forgot over and over and over again. And I'm just saying, that same tendency of Israel is our tendency as well. We will forget. It's so easy to forget. And Peter knows that when I'm gone, you're going to be prone to forget. That's why I'm going to say, remember, remember, remember. And even God established many means by which He was remembered. I think about the Passover. The people of Israel were to come every year, reflect upon the Passover, do all this stuff so as to remember what took place back there in the past. Of how God redeemed them out of slavery from Egypt and brought them into the promised land. Every year, they're supposed to remember that, remember that, remember that. And upon crossing the Jordan, they're supposed to erect a pile of memorial stones. When the sons see that, they say, what is that? And they say, well, it's because God delivered us in this great and mighty way. All the feasts and festivals are an opportunity to look back and remember. The Jews were good at that. But you know what? They weren't good at that. They forgot. Just like we forget. How easy is it? The temple was a large object lesson teaching, teaching Israel all the time, if you sin, you need a sacrifice. Look, you need a high priest. You can't go into my presence apart from a high priest. It's talking time after time after time after time again. And what happened to Israel? Oh, they offered sacrifices, but their heart were far from God. Oh, they may have done those things, but they missed the things which those things called them to remembrance. We can easily forget. For us today, the, the greatest sign of remembrance really is the Lord's Supper. That's really... Two institutions, been, ordinances have been set aside for the church. One is baptism, going down into the water, signify your, your death coming up, signify your resurrection from the dead with Christ, a cleansing, the washing, washing. That's one. 
The second one that Christ has given is, and that's a picture of salvation, it's a picture of Christ. The second one that uh, God has given to us, the Lord's Supper, whereby remember His death. I mean, it is a picture of the cross. Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, eat it and drink it and remember Christ again. In fact, do you remember what He said? Do this in remembrance. That's what this message is all about. That's what we need to do. We need to remember Jesus Christ. So we're going to, have the men come and pass out the, the bread. If you're visiting with us, you're more than welcome to celebrate with us if you're trusting Christ. If you're not trusting Christ, just let it pass by. It's not for you. Because this is for Christians. In fact, even the Bible says that if we eat and drink wrongly, we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. So if there's unconfessed sin that you have, let it pass. Deal with your sin. If, if you're hoping in Christ, confess your sin now and celebrate this wonderful time together. Let me pray. We'll sing some songs. We'll eat this together. And I know it's going long, but maybe that'll help you remember. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for this time as we think once again upon the sacrifice of Christ. How the song says, You became nothing, poured out to death. We thank You, Lord, for Your, your working in us called us, redeemed us, saved us, purified us. And I pray that we would always remember the cross. We'd always remember that we hope in a crucified Savior who will propitiate our, our sins before You, satisfy Your wrath. So help us in these things. Cause this to be a time of joyful worship as we reflect upon You and all that You've done. I pray, God, that we would not forget Gethsemane. We would not forget Your love for me. So lead us to Calvary. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.